Get ready. This summer, the Inglorious Live Tour continues. I am ready. Tre- Are you so ready? ready? <laughs> Are you sure you're ready? Well, we're coming to a city near you. Don't miss Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, as we descend on San Diego Comic-Con, July 20th to 23rd. Oh GalaxyCon. Raleigh. 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 North Carolina Raleigh. in uh, July 27th through July 30th. Then we're going to be getting lucky in Las Vegas oh for my. the creation 57-year mission convention on August 3rd to the 6th. And then finally, we're back in Austin, Texas, Labor Day weekend for yet another great GalaxyCon. So for more details, go to ComicCon.org, GalaxyCon.com, and CreationEnt.com. And we'll see you out there on the final frontier or in Raleigh. Well, here we go. Deck 78. what the critics are saying about Wise Guy on CBS. It's a tough, gritty, fast-paced cop show. Talks fast, moves fast, shoots fast. If you want intrigue and danger, watch Wise Guy. It's a big, stylish vehicle with a full-size V8 engine. Ken Wall in the show everyone's raving about. Wise Guy, Wednesdays. This is CBS. Well, today we're pulling up our chairs here on Deck 78. Not on Deck 78, we're, we're, we're stepping into the OCB, the Organized <laughs> Crime Bureau, and I got not only Darren Docterman and Ashley Edward Miller, but a very special guest, wise guy fan extraordinaire, the proprietor of the Burnett work, host with the most, Ma- Robert Meyer Burnett, and perhaps the only man who will ask Ken Wall about the taking of Beverly Hills. So, Mark, uh, <laughs> Mark I got to say, I mean, when we first met uh 29 years ago in in 1984, one of the things that you and I bonded over was our love of the show Wise Guy. Absolutely. And, and it was not it was not something that I had anyone else in my life that loved Wise Guy. And in meeting you, in addition to our love of Star Trek, we found well, out we, we both met love because Wise of Star Trek, but that didn't give you like a leg up. That didn't make you cool, right? Like, I mean, okay, he likes Star. <laughs> I know I get introduced to a lot of people like Star Trek, and in fact, that's probably a demerit, right? But um, th- what we found out quickly was that we both love Wise Guy, and we both love the Winds of War, and you know, it was such a joy uh, to find. A kindred spirit. Of course, those are two things that we honored in our first movie together, Free Enterprise. Yeah. Um, not only do we mention name check the winds of war, but at the very end of the movie, we have all these credits. And one of them is mixed in with the the best boy and the gaffer and the sounder engine is uh wise guy, Vinny Terranova. 
Well, and I also have to say, your your uh, illustrious co-writer Ed Gross that you've done so many wonderful books with, you actually gave me his book that he wrote on Wise right. Guy that I've used. You know, kind of like B. Joe Trimble's Concordance. That that book I've read that book a hundred times. It's the only book that I know of that was written about Wise Guy, and it's phenomenal. And he's been threatening to update it for the last twenty years, and I'm hoping he does. Uh, and I've tried to help him, like connect him with people that would potentially do it, just because I want to read it, yeah. you know. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah, and and because I think it ended, he, he came out when the show was still in production, and uh, so um, he wants to complete it. And of course, he's done a lot more interviews, including I think he had gotten Jerry Lewis to write a forward for it, which is incredible. Wow. Um, so I, I really hope. That, that happens. And we were very fortunate because a couple of weeks ago, we had David Burke on the show, who was the visionary behind Wise Guy and also Sequest and had amazing stories who we all met at Comic-Con a few years ago when we did a Wise Guy tribute panel with uh, David and David Kemper and um, Mark Guggenheim and Ed Gross. And, uh, and, and now uh, to have our white whale, so to speak, uh, Ken Wall, Vinny Terranover himself, our white wall. Us. Your white wall. White wall. Damn the it. white yeah. wall. He's right. um, <laughs> so amazing. And to hear that the only reason he did the show, because he is he is somebody who does not do a lot of press. He never did. Yeah. Uh, it, even, you know, in his, his the height of his stardom, he didn't do it. He doesn't do it now. But apparently he was such a fan of the show that we did with David Burke. Um, that he he heard our call that we put out the bat signal. I think at the end we said, <laughs> you know, and Kenny, if you want to go on the show, you know, and 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 here he is. I mean, we're 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 so delighted to have Ken Wall talk about his amazing career and this amazing show's Wise Guy. And if you haven't seen Wise Guy, and a lot of you probably haven't, um, there is a beautiful new Blu-ray from Mill Creek. I think Rob. See, I think so. I'm looking at it right now. It's from Mill Creek. It's hard to get though. Yeah, you but know, go on Amazon. It's on Amazon as well. It also streams a lot. Um, there, a lot of these Avod channels have a a wise dedicated Wise Guy channel where they just stream Wise Guy, like um, Stir and and Distro TV, and right. I think I don't know if Pluto does. I think the Film Rise channel I don't has think it. So yeah, but um, I I uh, I can't can't say enough things. This show was so ahead of its time and paved the groundwork for what we now call Peak TV. Um, is is phenomenal. And it's VEI, uh, Mark. It's out on VEI. Oh, VEI, VEI. Okay. Um, and uh, Vinny Entertainment Incorporated, <laughs> Dead Dog <Yeah>. Video. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it was um, it, you know, it's extraordinary because for a long time the music arc was not available, which was a huge arc um, because of the music clearances, which is often the case with shows from the 80s, but they finally cleared the music on virtually every episode other than perhaps the greatest moment, one of, not only the greatest moment, Wise Guy, one of the great moments in TV history, which is the um, final episode, uh, No One Gets Out Here Alive, of the uh, original Sonny Steelgrave arc. Um, and they did not, they were not able to get Nights in White Satin, which is heartbreaking. So maybe we should bring the Moody Blues onto the show and uh, see if we can talk them into just, you know, cutting them a sweetheart deal for the rights. Yeah, but Mark Cushman did a book, and then we'll have all these people writing about how Mark Cushman is the Antichrist or something for some reason. Oh, that would be weird. I don't understand. You know, he wrote those wonderful deep. books on Star Trek, and then, you know, people just, for, for whatever reason, they have, they have it out for this guy. So, 
I love those books. The, the, the Gathering Gloom. Watch lights fade in every room. They kind of were the second night <laughs> Pink Floyd, weren't they? Kind of, yeah. But yeah. that song, that song yeah, is one of the greatest song. songs of all time. It is. It is. It is pretty great. I grew up uh, listening yeah. to a lot of AM radio in the seventies, man. And whenever that song came on, it, it first of all the introduction scared me, but well, I love the song. Also, why, why don't we technically Roger Waters by, by bringing in Ken Wall? You mean uh, you think they came <laughs> for Ken Wall, not the Booty Blues? Okay, yes, fair enough. I think that's a okay. Good idea. So without uh, any further ado, let's bring on the wise guy himself, Mr. Ken Wall. Well, hello, Buckwheat. We're so thrilled to have you on the. Uh, uh, on the show, Ken, uh, you have some hey, well, of the biggest... I was thrilled a minute ago before you do the buckwheat thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to kill you. Yeah, well, I can't do <laughs> that. I, I can't do the Vinny the way... Uh, we we'll the... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the, the, the way that Ray did it, which was just so brilliant. But I, I want to start by asking you about, obviously, breaking into the business. You know, 79, uh, the... the um, the Walter Hill film, The Warriors, which was pulp, got a lot of attention. But the real yeah. great movie about gangs and, and more grounded based on the Richard Price novel is Phil Kaufman's 1979 picture, The Wanderers. Okay, bye-bye. Back in 63, there was one kind of music. Yeah, all right, some rock and roll. One kind of love. No, not yet. No, in a couple minutes, we're going to be naked. Then what? And all kinds of gangs. If you ever need us, just whistle loud. We'll be there. I'm in love. Look at that. Teenage trouble. The terrors of their turf. There were the Fordham Baldies. I got a urge tonight. Let's stomp some ass. The Dell Bombers. The Wongs. What do we do, Joy? What do we do? Nothing. They just started chasing me. And then there were the Wanderers. Leave the kid alone. Gotcha. A legend in their time. The Wanderers. It was their world. You guys don't know where you're living. You're talking last year. We ain't going with you without these. Then you ain't going with us. Their rules. Nice knowing you got Wanda's brother, right, Joey? Let's go! It was their time, but time was running out. Hey, buddy! Somebody's in trouble! The Wanderers. Too crazy to run. Too proud to hide. I don't want to see you run. Are you going too good to lose. One is forever. Around, 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 around. The Wanderers are coming. Not yet. And you'll never forget them. 
which you are so amazing in. And I'd love to know about getting that picture and, you know, sort of breaking into acting, because that wasn't something that was on your radar for a long time, was it? No, absolutely not. No, I, I'm probably from the age of four. All I ever wanted to do was be a baseball player. And when I was about 15, uh, and I was living in uh, Tucson at the time, I went to six different high schools. I got bounced around a lot, so we can get into that later if you want. But anyway, I was with this buddy of mine who had a mini bike. He let me ride it. I hit a rock, came down on my knee, hit it pretty bad. Not permanent damage or anything, but it it slowed me down. I was playing organized ball then, what they called uh, Pony League. I led my league in uh, stolen bases and doubles. I was really fast. The brothers used to call me White Lightning. That was my my <laughs> moniker. From them. But that that injury slowed me down, Lou. So I knew I couldn't play ball anymore. So I just tried to have I tried to figure out something else that I could do uh, to make a living with my life and. I was about 16 years old when I saw the movie The Sting with Newman and Redford. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how old you, how old are you guys? Just so I know the frame. We're of uh, around 50s. Oh, well, we yeah. love George it's... Roy Hill's The Sting. Okay. <laughs> so, well, no, I'm just uh, remembering the story about Guggenheim, who was about 16, 17 when he first saw Wise Guy. Right. Mm. And so that reminded me of the first time I ever talked to him. I said, the way you are with Wise Guy was the way I was with this movie, The Sting. Uh-huh. So uh, Newman and Redford up there, and it just looked so interesting. So I said, you know what? I don't know why, but I think I can do that. And so that was the, the first I, the kernel of an idea that I had that I could even try this. I had never had any interest in acting or movies, for that matter, or anything like that. Uh, I never even did a play in school, wow. not even in school or junior high or I, nothing like that. I just it, none of my family was ever anywhere near anything to do with show business. But I just had this in me that I think I can do this if I get it a sh- give it a shot. Of course, everybody told me I was out of my mind. I was crazy. And I didn't argue with them. I wasn't one of these people that had stars in my eyes and thought, oh, you, I'll show you. You'll see my name in light someday. Right. It wasn't like that at all. <laughs> I, was, I was very practical and pragmatic about it. I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, and you're probably right. I'm probably out of my mind. I'll probably fall flat on my face. But you know what? I know if I don't try, someday I'll look back and kick myself for not giving it a shot. Absolutely. So I did. And I, I was in Chicago at the time. I had to, I flipped a coin between going to New York or going to L.A. Luckily, it came up L.A. because uh, it was a really bad winter in the late 70s. It was freezing. So I didn't mind going to a warmer climate. So I went out to L.A., just did some open auditions. I got my first job as an extra within six hours of showing up in L.A., Mm. <laughs> I just to run into this girl who was a PA on a thing called the Buddy Holly story. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that movie with Gary mm-hmm. Busey. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And I'm in the very first shot. The director uh, pulled me out and did a thing called what they call a silent bit, where you're just not an extra in the crowd, where he actually pulls you out. And I'm in the very first shot of that movie. And you can see the movie opens up on a neon flashing crescent moon. And what that is, it's a uh, roller rink. And the camera um, tilts down, and it's on this 
kid that gets out of a car wearing a blue checkered shirt, getting going to the other side of the car to get his girlfriend out. And that kid is me. And then the huh. camera on my back, walking up to the box office to get tickets to go inside this roller rink where Buddy Holly and the crickets are playing. Wow. So that that was how it all started. And that was within six hours of showing up in town. <laughs> Amazing. You know what? It, this is a pretty good omen, right? Yeah, I mean, just that I ran into that girl who was a PA on this movie, and she, she says, yeah, we need extras. Right. And at that time, extras had their own union. Yeah, the they still Yeah. Is it still separate? I, I, I think they, they, were they combined. The they they combined. were absorbed into SAG, the Screen Extras Guild. Right, but, okay. But now they're called but background artists. Yeah. Right. <laughs> at, at, yeah, okay. At that time, though, they were completely separate. Yeah. So a lot of the productions were looking for non-union extras. Mm. And since I showed up in town a couple hours ago, I was pretty safe that I wasn't in the union. Oh. She <laughs> said, yeah, you had uh, $25 and a box lunch. And that's what I did. So that's how it started. But then from there, of course, nothing came from being an extra, obviously. Sure. But, but it, I just it, started going on. It didn't Go hurt to have a good face. No, I guess not. But there, there were, you know, that's something that uh, Burke and I were arguing about just the other, not arguing, but discussing <laughs> the other, about, you know, my, my punum, you know, and how great it was and all that. And yeah. I got on him a little bit when he did your cast here about uh, calling me a matinee idol. And I said, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, and I said, look, I don't need that shit, man. That's, that you, you try so hard to be to t have your work be taken seriously, not yourself, but your work you want right. to be taken seriously. And um, so, anytime they start throwing that matinee idol stuff, pretty boy stuff around, you know, it's it's gonna eat. Well, you that's up. why you push back so hard on that sexiest man alive in the eighties oh, because you oh, were a serious part. actor, and and yeah. here they are, you know, falling all over themselves to say, you know, that you're you're the sexiest man alive. Uh, that that was murder. That was that was tough. Cause, and everybody thought I was disingenuous, saying that I didn't like that. And I say, look, everybody likes to everybody likes to think of themselves as attractive, and so do I. That's great. But as soon as you start putting a label on it, like sexiest man on TV or whatever the hell it was, <laughs> it's an impossible thing to live up to. Number yeah. one. Secondly, it's so subjective, you know. And because you have that label on you now you're going to get the opposite reaction. Oh, he's not so great. He's not, yeah. you know, you get all yeah. that thing. Plus, all the guys hate you. Half your audience hates you now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why I was always against that stuff. But did I like that some women found me attractive? Sure. I loved it. You know, nothing. But it doesn't need that whole label and a cover on the magazine and all that kind of stuff. Right, but as far right. as the piece goes, what, what Burke was saying was that I had these matinee idol looks and everything, but that was from his perspective. From my perspective, it was totally opposite. When I first got to L.A., everybody told me, you know, my, my family was pretty poor, so they couldn't afford orthodontia, so I have crooked teeth in the front. And everybody told me, if you expect to have any level of success in this business, you've got to get your teeth fixed. you got to, I have a, a unibrow, the Italian unibrow, right? <laughs> and I left that alone. I didn't groom my eyebrows i didn't want to look like i was trying to look like a movie star yeah you know i got to admit very early on now you got to remember i'm 19 years old at that time right. and i almost caved because i got so much pressure so where burke was thinking that oh i just breathed in and everything was so easy because i have matinee idol looks 
I got shit from the exact opposite. You got to fix those teeth. If you don't fix your teeth, you're never going to go anywhere. You don't groom your eyebrows. You're never going to go anywhere. All that. And I resisted. I resisted. I resisted. I did almost cave a few times. But when I finally got working with Paul Newman, and he told me, he said, do whatever you can to resist them wanting to make you pretty. He said, yep. it took me, Paul, took him 15 years to get out of that pretty boy mold before he started being taken seriously as an actor. Mm -hmm. Wow. Because there's, that know, old, there's that old axiom, God doesn't give with two hands. So people figure either you're great looking and can't act or, you know, you're right. not and you're a great actor, right? And it's a, right. you can't be both. And obviously you were both. Right. As I was explaining to Burke, I said, the way it works is that automatically when someone is considered good looking, sexy, whatever you want to call it, regardless of what they think of themselves, if the outside world perceives you that way, you have to try 10 times harder to make it. As an, and because especially in New York, as Newman told me, there was such a prejudice against good looking actors and actresses sure. because they have to put themselves so much more. That it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, you're good looking. So that means obviously that you can't act simply because of the fact that you're good looking. And mm -hmm. that was the attitude. So that's why I resisted uh, getting my teeth fixed, waxing my eyebrows, all that stuff. I did. And because Newman backed me up on that, that gave me incredible confidence. When I got the stamp of approval from Paul Newman, where I had all these nobodies telling me, you got to get your teeth fixed. You got to do this. You got to do that. No, 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 no. I don't want to. But when I had Newman's imprimatur on it, then I said, okay, I know I'm doing the right thing. And Hell I yeah. said that way the whole time. And that's got to be incredible at that point in your career to be top lining a movie with Paul Newman. I mean, you talk about how you grew up loving the sting, how that was your North star. And then all of a sudden you're acting with one of the stars of the sting. Well, that's another uh, amazing part of the story is I didn't grow up loving this thing. I just happened to see it one day. I went to the movies with my girlfriend, which I could rarely do because I didn't have the money to. I said, wow, what a cool movie. And it looks like so much fun. Plus, I'm kind of a history buff. I love that depression era of the right. 1930s. I think it's great material for that. Plus, uh, being born in Chicago, I had a, a, an mm. affinity as they were in Chicago. And a lot of the streets they were talking about, I lived on or worked on. So that was a connection with me, uh, for me too, as well. But um, yeah, I, so I happened to see this movie and I did see it multiple times and because I liked it so much. But only the first time did I watch it for entertainment. Then I started watching it for camera angles and music cues and lighting and line delivery and things like that. I was starting to get my education because I said, I want to try this. So I want to learn as much as I possibly can. So I was really watching it as a tutorial after the first time seeing it for entertainment. And Did you? I actually learned a lot from watching that movie and it turned it out to be the best picture. So I'm watching this movie three and a half years later, I'm working with Paul Newman. Did you, did you take any acting? Go, sorry? Oh, sorry. Did you take any acting courses when you decided acting was something you were going to delve into? And, and no. if you, did you, you, so you didn't know, like when you first stepped on the set of Buddy Holly, I was going to ask you the Buddy Holly story. 
what was the most surprising thing about finally being on a movie set for the first time? What did you learn much, that you, you, you hadn't even considered? How much everybody stands around and does nothing. Right. <laughs> that, that's what really surprised me about being on the movie set. And, and, of course, I realize now, you know, when one set of people are working, the other people can't be working. Right. So, you know, and just hearing the AD, quiet, quiet, quiet all the time. It's like, it amazed me that anything ever got done because there are so many things that could possibly go wrong. But that was the first thing that struck me because I had never been on a movie set. I had never been within a thousand miles of a movie set as far as I knew. Uh, well, maybe, and I guess I did a couple movies in Chicago, so I guess I was closer to a thousand miles. But um, And they did movies in Tucson too, in old Tucson. They used to do Westerns when I lived sure. there. Um, but I had never been anywhere near it. And when I did get on, that's what I had to do. Hundreds of people standing around drinking coffee and eating donuts. So that was my first impression of, of cinema. <laughs> I was going to say, before we, we, we touch on Wise Guy, I mean, I think about all these acting legends you work with, you know, like Paul Newman, but even on um, The Dirty Dozen, The Next Mission, which I remember waiting for anxiously. Um, you you really? with Lee Marvin. <laughs> yes, yes. And that was really sad. That was Lee Marvin's last movie, I think, or last job, or very close to it. He yeah. had he had terrible emphysema. Right. And it was it was painful working with him. That poor man at that time could not and you know, this was a tough guy. This was a really tough guy in his day. You know, he was a Marine Raider, he was the yeah. real deal. Yeah. But this poor bastard couldn't walk two steps without, it looked like he'd just run a marathon. Heaving, wheezing, and it was just painful to be around him. So what they would do is he'd have a, 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 he's in the shot, you know, his double is there doing it. And then they wheeled him in on a wheelchair and I picked him up and put him on his mark and, you know, roll it, he'd do the thing, and then he'd immediately collapse. He'd have to sit down oh, again, just from oh, just from uttering a few words. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was sad. It was terrible. So we just tried to make it as easy as possible right. for him. But it, that wasn't Lee Marvin anymore. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. was, mm -hmm. that was the ghost of Lee Marvin. Well, Unfortunately, before, and he died soon after. Right, yeah. Before I'd seen... You and Wise Guy, I'd seen, like I said, I saw Waters and Fort Apache, but a movie that I loved that I have to say that I was so excited to see, and to this day I love it, is James Glickenhouse's The Soldier. <laughs> now, I got to tell you, he had made The Exterminator. And the exterminator yes. with Robert Ginty was uh, the violence in it, the action. It was incredible. And so I go to see, I mean, and, and the soldier, I mean, Klaus Kinski, you work with the late, great Steve James. Yeah. If Steve James yeah. was in a movie, that means it was 10 times cooler. He was, oh, yeah. I mean, he was in like American Steve, Ninja. Was, Steve James was a very good friend of mine. And I was there too when he died of pancreatic cancer. And boy, did that eat him up faster. Since Man, we're talking and, about him. Emo with Lee Marvin. Let's get all the diseases out of the way. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. you were in the soul with Klaus Kinsey and even Joaquin Delmeda when he was younger. But, you know, Glickenhouse, the soldier was a movie where they thought the negative was lost for a long time. And a couple of even... yeah, a couple of years ago, they found it and they re-released a beautiful version on home video where Glickenhouse came back because he left the business and became a Wall Street trader and got rich. 
You yeah, know? that's I heard that. Yeah. Uh, but that film, like, did you have fun making that movie? Because that movie's oh, a that was a blast. blast. That was a total blast because that was just pure action. I think I had four words in the whole damn thing. And I, I was the lead of <laughs> But you kicked I mean, ass. That was a really easy day for the script writers, you know, because at least, with the dialogue, at least with the dialogue, because there was almost none. So, yes, Glickenhaus definitely had a style about him. There's no mm. doubt about that. I mean, he knew how to turn a buck into, he could make $1 look like 10. I mean, his, the yeah, action in those yeah. movies, you got, you had skiing action, you had nuclear yeah. blasts. It was incredible. Oh, Fuck. the Berlin Wall. Remember we did that? <laughs> they actually built a styrofoam section of the Berlin Wall that uh, was abutting the real Berlin Wall. <laughs> oh my God. And it was incredible. And then they did the, the jump. I don't know if you remember that they did that jump over the Berlin Wall. Oh, yeah. Uh, with in a Porsche, so yeah. yeah, we did, and that was during the time when you know the Berlin Wall was still very much we very much in the Cold War. Yeah, this was 1981 when we filmed that. Yeah, so we were very much you know against the evil empire then and all that. So the the Berlin Wall still had eight years to go before it was going to be torn down and everything changed. Did you get along with so Klaus we were right Kinski? In the middle, so we had, when we, were sh when we were shooting, we had all those East German soldiers with their binoculars <laughs> checking us out and making sure what we're doing, you know, with their rifles over their shoulders. Jeez. And we were eyeball to eyeball with these guys. And it, was, it was pretty exciting. <laughs> what was it like working with Kinski, Klaus Kinski? Uh, well, he was extremely reticent he he wouldn't talk to anybody he didn't do it he just came did his thing turned around and walked away uh -huh. he was not very warm or friendly at all i must say but i mean he sure did his job well oh yeah but i mean you just you just look at the guy you, you want to run and turn and run and hide you know <laughs> <laughs> no that movie well, i gotta tell you really holds up despite all the crazy act it really does and uh the glickenhouse's commentary he explains during the movie uh because uh, I always wondered about how they pulled off. He was very good at, as I said, stretching a buck. And uh, his action scenes were always really impressive. And that, fil that film, your performance in it, it really holds up. It really holds Thank up. Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. And I, I enjoyed doing, I did a lot of the stunts too. And I made sure, because it was so action-oriented, and I was only, what, 23, 24 at the time. So I was in great shape and all that, a very fit. And I wanted to make sure that not all the the shots were uh, far away, so you couldn't tell it was me. So I'm doing, you know, medium close-ups of me uh, crashing through a window. Yeah, I don't know if you remember. And it was in, it was overcranked, so it was nice slow motion. I made sure that I stuck my face up there, so you could say, "Hey, that's really him. <laughs> yeah. That's not some stunt man. That's not some stunt man doing it for me. He's really doing right. that." So that was a lot of fun being an athletic guy myself. It was a lot of fun doing all all that physical stuff. Yeah, you were great. Yeah, you know, now hey. there's not a stigma between actors going from movies to TV. But back in the 80s, you know, you were either a, a fe feature actor or a TV actor. And of course, you know, you had done some big features. Then you end up doing this TV show. Did you have any concerns about doing television at that time? Without that, is knowing that is a fantastic question. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do this with you guys, because you guys understand that stuff. Yes, I've had this uh, conversation with Burke and, and back in the day with Cannell. I was a complete TV snob back mm -hmm. then, but not 
unjustified that I was right. because it, in doing some research for your cast here, I looked back at, and I saw, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I looked it up and for the 1987-88 season, which was our, which was Wise Guys' first season, seven of the top 10 shows on TV at the time were half-hour sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And I mean, except for the Cosby show and a couple of the classic ones, stupid, ridiculous sitcoms that, that an eight-year-old wouldn't find funny. It was just horrible. So we were living in that time where I had no interest in doing television whatsoever. So to, to answer your question, yes, I had incredible apprehensions about doing TV after having started in features. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's so different now because back then you didn't have multiple showings, for example, of episodes where you would have a an encore presentation of whatever. Like, I really enjoyed Mad Men when it was on. Mm-hmm. And you know, first of all, they're only doing, what, 13 episodes for an entire season. And they don't come back for another year. Right. You know, we're lucky if we have a few weeks hiatus before we got to come back and grind it out again. Plus, we're grinding out those shows in six and seven days, mm-hmm. which I look back on that now. That is incredible. Because it wasn't like we were sitting in a studio the whole time. We were out with big company moves on location all over the place, and the pace was murder. Uh, oh, it, but I digress. That, when I when I <laughs> no. see what that was on back in the eighties, that's a that's there a great was no that's way. A, and I told Channel on our first meeting, I said, Steve, you know this thing is not going to be a big ratings winner. I could see the potential for it. The thing I hated about the pilot was he put those A team scenes in it. Yeah, where Vinny's mm-hmm. shooting rocket grenade launchers and shit like that. <laughs> and it's that almost a different series than when David takes over after the pilot. Yeah, it's totally. Yeah. You have all that Absolutely. stuff in the warehouse and just a, a yes. bunch of this superfluous action, and and then right, it just becomes a different that, show. Absolutely, and I am convinced that Cannell, and, and I don't want to put Cannell down because, to his credit. He ultimately left Burke and me alone to mm-hmm. let us do Wise Guy as we saw fit. But at the beginning, uh, when he wrote the pilot, I am convinced that he thought of the rocket launching scene first and right. then did the show around <laughs> Right. <laughs> Absolutely convinced of that. Of course, yeah. he would never admit that. But I really believe that. So when you take out the superfluous action and all that gratuitous crap, I saw the potential for it. And the first thing I said to Cannell was, this is too good for television minus that action stuff. Mm-hmm. You should, this should be a feature. I said, this could even be a franchise where it could be like, uh, that, uh, Vinny Terranova would be the American James Bond. Right. That's how I saw it. Well, in a way you and, were right. I mean, one yeah. of the things about the show, and I was curious to hear your thoughts. When I, I was in college, when the show was airing and it was the structure of the show that really struck me and how obviously you you first have the Ray Sharkey storyline and then later on the Mel and Susan Prophet storyline. No one had been doing serialized storytelling on TV to that Nobody. extent. And did you, did you, I mean, already you were apprehensive about TV, but did you think those ongoing storylines where a story would take eight scripts or, or, or 10 scripts to finish a whole story? storyline would work on network television at the time yes and that's what sold me 
to do mm. it because I almost turned it down for the prior reasons that I mentioned. Sure. But because we had the hunger, because even as a kid, um, I couldn't stand watching television shows where like the guy would get his, the lead guy would get his ass kicked and get his face bashed in. And the following week, he was like, it never happened. Yeah. Right. The reset button. What's that? The reset button. Yes. And I hate it. And I understand why they do it, that every show needs to be self-contained so people don't get lost. And I knew also that by doing the continuing story where we had four to eight episodes for each storyline, that we wouldn't have big ratings. And mm-hmm. I told Cannell that too on the very first meeting. I said, you know, Steve, I could go door to door and ask people, please watch this show. I said, there's only going to be a very small percentage of people who are willing to devote that much attention to the show in order to follow it. Because let's say you watch uh, episode one, of pick your arc, any storyline you like. If you miss episode two and you come back on episode three, you're lost. Yeah. You're dead. You're not, you don't know any what's going on. So you're going to lose a lot of your audience because of that. Unless it's Lynchboro, in which case it doesn't matter when you come in because it's so crazy, it, it makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's my least favorite one, Lynchboro. That one was a little nutty. And, you know, what was going on with me after I got uh, hurt on the set and all that, it, it was just nuts. Well, but, you said it yourself. Uh, These were six-day, seven-day shoots. You were running yeah. and gunning. You barely had any standing sets other than the OCB and and so you're always on location. You're always moving. You you you're desperately trying to make your days. And um, and and, and yeah, it, you know, safety I mean, goes out the window. You guys probably know better than I do. We had the standing to the what the OCB war room, mm-hmm. um, Vinny's house, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much it that I right. remember. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So we were out. Yeah, like you say, running and gunning constantly. But the good and thing it, about the good thing about the the way the show was structured and the necessity for the audience to keep track of what was going on, that made the audience devoted because they had to engage and put in the time to pay attention. Well, isn't that the very definition of a cult show? Absolutely. Yeah. A small, devoted audience. Yeah. And that's yeah. exactly what we had because, as I said, there's you can't expect people, especially from that era, to sit down and expect to watch every one hour episode. Plus there were a couple other things that really went against us. Number one, CBN, I just learned this in my, doing my research for this. Um, CBS in the 1987, 88 season was the first time they were in last place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So of course your promos are going to be seen by fewer people because your network is in last place. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we got preempted so often. And I remember uh, Mark telling uh, Guggenheim telling me that when he was a kid and watching it, he said he remembered at the end of the first arc with, with uh, Sonny. And then uh, Vinny goes um, to see uh, OCB shrink. Right. And that, that show's called Last Rites for Lucci. So right. and that is the final episode of anything connected with um, Sonny Steelgrave before we start going into the Mel Prophet story. Well, he said that he remembered as a kid that there was like an this interminable wait between the Sonny Steelgrave story and the Mel Prophet story. And I said, really? I don't remember that. I said, let me look it up. And sure enough, the last uh, episode of Last Rites for Lucio, the Sonny show, was the first week of December. 
and it, it didn't come back until the third week of January. Mm-hmm. So he, and he said, when you're a 17 year old kid, that's like an eternity. Yeah. I said at any, at any age for a television show, that's <laughs> an eternity. You're talking, we were preempted for six weeks. Yeah. And so now you're going to ask your audience, oh, come back. Everything's fine. <laughs> well, not only that, it. when you're conditioned to watch TV as the story of the week and suddenly uh, Ray Sharkey is killed in the episode and, you know, you're done. It's like, oh, the show's over, right? You're not yeah. conditioned to think, oh, now they're going to have a new story and a new antagonist. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. We had all of those things work. It, it's when you look back at all these factors, and it's amazing that we lasted the three seasons that we did. It's incredible. Well, you had your critical champions like David Ben Cooley, who just sang your praises, which helped keep you on the air because these critics, thank God, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about how great the show was. Yes, yes. Well, if you read the, the critics from the pilot, they weren't so loving. Right. <laughs> so you're right, isn't it? And Burke and Cronish came on board. And I remember the first day that I met them, and I thought, thank you, Lord, because we hit it off immediately. We were of the same mind. We were simpatico on almost everything. And it was it was just a, a, a beautiful pairing with Burke and with uh, Cronish as well. Mm-hmm, so I was mm-hmm. very grateful that we got those guys because... Of course, I wanted to keep the A-team stuff to a minimum, if not completely eliminated. Yeah. And, of course, Burke and Cronus were of the same mind as well. Coming from features, another thing that I think really set Wise Guy apart was all of the other actors they cast opposite you. They really populated, whether it was your your, your family members, whether it was people like whether Stanley Tucci, uh, uh, Fred Dalton Thompson showing up as Knox Pooley, and you got to go home and deal with that. Did you? How about you, all the in the music arc with Tim? Uh, uh, Tim oh my, Tim Curry, Curry and Paul Winfield and, and Deborah Patty Harry, Dar- and, Debbie and, and Harry, Glenn Fry. I mean, Mick, Mick Wood and Glenn Fry. I, I mean, yeah, just a cornucopia of those people. It was just uh, incredible. Yeah, it's no but wonder that, you say that was your favorite arc because I imagine for Ken Wall, the actor, that's got to be just a, a dream come true with uh, all those legends. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It was it was great, and they were all so such wonderful people too. And by that time, but when we did the music arc, we had a pretty good buzz, and so there were actors, people wanting, requesting to come on Wise Guy. By that time, they were really looking forward. To okay, the yeah. Arc. So because we were getting such good critical notices, even though we were just barely hanging on ratings wise. And I got to give a lot of credit. I mentioned it before Kim LaMasters mm-hmm. because he was the head of CBS programming at that time. And he was, he liked our show and he single-handedly in my view, kept us on the air because there was a lot of people under him that were calling for the ax. And, you know, I, I thought I probably see uh, episode five, episode six in the sunny story. I thought we were done. I thought we were dead. Mm-hmm. And he kept going. He kept us going. So we were able to flourish a little bit after that. And because we got the uh, better notices, that let Cannell leave us alone. He said, okay. He even admitted, he said, I don't really understand what you guys are doing. <laughs> because, you know, Cannell's world is the A-team. Yeah. And Hunter, 
And Hunter, which I just saw recently for the first time, the pilot of Hunter, is a dead solid ripoff of (laughs) Dirty Harry. I mean, it's Dirty Harry with Fred Dreyer in it instead of Clint Eastwood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, I did not appreciate that one. The hope I was hanging on to was that, well, Steve Cannell is the guy that also did the Rockford Files. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was yep. a better, better quality. It was a, it was a different, especially for the mid-70s, where you had a, a, a PI that didn't want to get in fights. He wasn't a macho guy. You know, he didn't want, to get his, didn't want to get his hands dirty. And that was interesting and fresh at that time. And, of course, Garner was great as that part, too. So that was slim hope I was hanging on to before Burke and Cronish came into the picture. Was there any point during the during the show when uh, you started seeing which direction uh, Burke and the and the other writers wanted to take the character that you disagreed with them, or were you always on the same page? Yeah, yeah, we really were. Because that's amazing. Yeah, i I had a little trouble with our other executive producer, uh, Les Sheldon. Mm-hmm. He was a little more of the old school way, where that. The uh, the hero, the lead of the show, always has to be you know the toughest and the best. And Burke and Cronish and I loved it that I played the fear, I played doubt, all right. those things that are not the normal heroic type of thing. The humanity. It's the humanity. I beg your pardon. The humanity of it. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. And and the the fallibility. Yeah. I loved it when Vinny's doing something like in the music arc, for example. It's like, oh, man, remember, Vinny got really cocky because Vinny for, practically forgot that he was a fed when he was doing yeah. the music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Having so much fun being a record producer. Yeah. So it's like, oh, man, I really screwed up. I, I took my eye off the ball. I was having so much fun. Yeah. I forgot <laughs> I'm supposed to arrest these guys. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, we just love that stuff. Let me give you an example. If you, I hope you remember this one. There's an episode early on with Roger Lococo's loft. And yep. Vinny goes to his loft. Roger's not there. With the steel balls and, the, and, the, 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 and his housekeeper. Right. His housekeeper's dead, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a guy in there who's a, like one of Lococo's hitmen. His character name is Michael Derhausen, and he's got a 12-gauge shotgun. Okay, so Roger had those ball bearings that he used as weapons, which yeah. is actually a real thing that uh, special ops guys use. And there's a special way of throwing them, all that. So, so there were these ball bearings that the housekeeper had that Vinny picked up as this guy is stalking him with the shotgun. So the way we shot it was I grab one of the uh, ball bearings and I whip it at the guy but I miss, and I'm throwing it like a baseball, not like the normal way that yeah. it's supposed to be thrown as a weapon, which is underhand with a flick of the wrist. I threw it like Roger did it. I threw it overhand like a baseball because Vinny was not trained in throwing ball bearings like that. And I miss. But now the stalker is now all of a sudden he's perked up because, oh, shit, that guy's got a weapon. So he's now fumbling, trying to reload his shotgun, which gives Vinny time to grab another ball bearing and throw it again, and this time hit him yeah. and kill him. Down he goes. And in the meantime, between the first throw and the second throw, Vinny's trying to hide behind the steel beams, and he's scared shitless. And I play that scene. Well, Les cut all that out. as one of the biggest fights I had. Mm. We 
shot it that way, but the way it was cut was that Vinny picks up the ball bearing, first shot, bang, kill shot. And I oh. just I just hate that with a passion. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, the Lone Ranger comes in and he saves a day. And I, and I, I just, I was so incensed by that. I, I think that was the most uh, intense fight that I had in the entire run. And it wasn't even with, with Burke or Cronish because they mm-hmm. agreed with me. Right. It was against Les Sheldon of the way he cut it that way. Because I didn't see, because we shot it with the two ball bearings. Yeah, yeah, great cut print, let's go. But then by the time I saw it, the show was already put together, so we didn't have time to change it. So right. that one really pissed me off because he didn't tell me he was going to do that mm-hmm, beforehand. Mm-hmm. Did you? So I've got to, most, go oh, ahead. I was just going to ask you about. It. I've always wanted to know know this. I don't know if you ever saw the movie or read Elmore Leonard's book Get Shorty, but it, no. John John Travolta in the movie plays a mobster that comes and gets involved in the music business. Yeah, I'm I am, familiar with it. The Never book came it. out in 1990. I'm convinced Elmore Leonard saw Wise Guy and wrote that book. How's that? Um, I think because I think he saw Vinny Terranova coming in, taking over Dead Dog. He's like, I can, I can turn that into a, I can turn that into a book. I swear to God, he did. I swear <laughs> to God, uh, because he had to have been inspired by Wise Guy. I've always thought that. And then they turned, they made the movie with John Travolta, who could have been you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, was, was, it, was, was that movie similar to the um, yes. music? Yes, because it, about an outsider, you know, who doesn't know anything about the music in instead, the film business instead of the music business. Yeah, and 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 uh, it was it was he's like a mobster coming in, and it was it was you know I just oh, thought so Travolta was a mobster too, but he was really a mobster. He, he was really a mobster. Yeah, 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 and uh, yeah. Oh, I'll have to I'll have to see that now. Yeah, you should see it. I just wondered because you know the the, the great thing about what I loved about Wise Guy was your character. It was almost like a great anthology show because the stories were so different and it was so much fun from a, an audience's perspective. I mean, for me, it was must see television, but for you, were you surprised? Uh, like, did they, did they consult with you as they were writing the scripts going, okay, we're going to go from the Knox Pooley storyline to the dead dog record storyline. Oh, I was completely involved in all that. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I was contractually got that because the, th- the other thing with the series that you have a, an incredible disadvantage is you really have no idea what you're getting into. You do the pilot, but none of the episodes are written. Right. And then if the pilot sells, it's like, okay, guys, now what? Mm. So I, again, thank God for David Burke and Steve Cronish. Yeah. And then it, it was just a, a great team that we got together. Because I, I, I'm telling you right now, if there had been different writers it would have been a completely different show. Yeah. And if they would have had a different, they would have had a different actor, lead actor, it would have been a completely different show. When did you know there was this incredibly, incredible alchemy between you and Ray Sharkey as Sonny Steelgrave? Because oh, right, obviously right. that's magic. Last week on Wise Guy. I'm gonna talk to your father about this. You okay with you? Sonny. If Sonny marries into the Bronx, that'll make things difficult. Mm-hmm. You've been inside Sonny's organization for six months. Who's got the soul of a Judas? I think that we can get to his right hand. Yes, Mr. Patrice. Terra Nova's seducible. You happy in Atlantic City? It's all right. All right is not happy. I'm not sure I know what happiness is. Everybody's going over to pat the cat. It's time you join him, Vinny. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea, Sonny. 
That's what I put you there for. I stay one step ahead of him, I could beat him. This is the one we wanted, Frank. The biggest fish on the East Coast. You know how hard it is to get a conviction on conspiracy? What do you want me to do? We're gonna hit Sonny the morning of his wedding at 7 o'clock. I need you to smuggle in some hardware to Scalise. I'll take care of it, Don Patrice. I'd like to thank Paul for giving us a nice spread. Right away. Right away. Yeah, you can, you can feel that. And I felt that way with Jonathan Banks, too. Yeah, we haven't talked about him yet. Not was, yet, no, but was we lo- Yeah, I was going to say, because one of the great, I, I think one of the great television duos, I'll dare say, of all time, is you and Jonathan Banks. The two of you. Well, the relationship uh, you have. Because in the very first episode, I'll never forget it, I, I had a real problem between the, the relationship between McPike and Vinny. And I'll tell you why. It was because, if you remember, at the beginning, McPike does not like Vinny at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my take on that was, you know what? Vinny is not going to be risking his life every day and putting up with a scumbag asshole boss <laughs> that he's got to deal with every day. He would go into Beckstead, or it was Elias before Beckstead at the time, the, the director, mm-hmm. and say, look, I can't work with this McPike guy. you got to be kidding me. I'm risking my life every day, and i got to put up with this guy? Get me a new field operative, a field ball, whatever his title was, or you know, I'm quitting. I'm out of here. So I went to Jonathan at lunchtime during the first day of the first episode, and I said, John, I want the relationship between Vinny and McPike to grow and develop and evolve into something where they really truly um, respect each other. And, and he was all for it. Yeah, go for it. So I called Cannell and told him about this idea. And he said, well, I don't want it to be like, oh, you big lug kind of a thing, kind of right. relationship. I, I said, no, I, I don't want that either. No, it's got to be real. It's got to uh, evolve naturally and for me when it really started to change was after Sonny electrocuted himself mm-hmm. and Vinny says to, to McPike I wish it was you and McPike yeah. says back to him no you don't no you Vinny. don't right. right yeah that was the first time that we see McPike have some kind of empathy for Vinny and then Vinny says well what about my cover before he takes him outside to arrest him um, he says, okay. And then the, 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 the cop behind him takes him to put cuffs on him. And McPike says, don't break his wrist, damn it. So mm-hmm. he's like being, he's being protective of Vinny for the first time. Right. It's- and so from that, it grew until at the end where Vinny's in the church and McPike is looking for him in Seattle. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he, he founds him and they hug and they kiss. And it's like, they, they truly love each other. It's like lifetime. it's like soldiers in wartime that you have to. Yes, it really to, was brothers in trust arms. and uh, and honor uh, the other, or else nothing's going to work. Yes, that brothers in arms. Yep. So that was that was a, a, a theme through the entire run was the the subplot of the relationship of Vinny and McPike. What you talked about, that was no all one by, get- and that was all by design. You talked about no one gets out of here alive. And I, I, I know that, you know, Ray and other people were starting to worry, like, maybe we shouldn't kill him. 
you know, maybe we should keep uh, Sunny Steelgrave alive. Uh, and, and of course, <laughs> it, it, it would not have. We did do one extra episode, A Deal's a Deal. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, well, Ray was. Right. You, you went back and filmed an episode that aired earlier just so you could keep him on the show longer, just for the Correct. people who aren't aware. Yeah. Correct. Yes. And yeah, there was some talk about that. And Cannell came up to Vancouver, and Ray was just having such a great time. And Ray and I were another one that I, I thought we had um, just a, a great affinity for each other. And uh, thought we worked really well together. And I thought, yeah, if you can work it out where you stay on longer, I'm fine with that. It doesn't bother me. But Cannell came up and said, look, I got the whole next storyline all worked out. It's all ready to go. So we just can't do it. I mean, we can give you another six days and one more episode. But other than that, that's it. Right, and right. Well, and then you came up with the idea for White Noise a couple of seasons later to bring it back. Yes. Yeah. And that was great, too, because how perfect it is that for Vinny to exorcise his demons mm. about Sonny. Because the thing about Sonny, too, the way I really wanted to play it at the beginning was Vinny was really a neophyte. He was just brand new at this and really didn't know what the hell he was doing. So if you notice, in the, especially in the first few episodes of the Sonny arc, Vinny is mostly listening doing a lot mm -hmm. of listening information and then reporting back to McPike about what's going on because Vinny's so new at this. I really wanted to, to portray that Vinny was a little bit in over his head. He really didn't know what he was getting into. Right. And then when you, you compound that with him genuinely developing a friendship with Sonny, well, there's all your conflict and your problems that have to be resolved. One of the things, too, about where where the show went, like right after the Steelgrave arc, like you talked about being James Bond, it really did take a Bondian turn where you brought in Mel and Susan Prophet, uh, uh, Joan Severance and, and Kevin Spacey, and then William Russ. This, the, the show was, was expanded in terms of, it was more globe-trotting and all that, and suddenly, you know... El Pavot! El Pavot, and you, you were this debonair, you know, you, you were... You yeah, felt like more, James Bond. I was much more in the suits and the tuxedos and all that stuff. But then you remember after that, what did we do after that? Going home where mm -hmm. Vinny goes back to the neighborhood. Yeah. He let his hair grow and his beard grow. And he's got to deal with these anti-Semitic bastards in the neighborhood in Brooklyn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you talk about going from one extreme to the other. You know, he's, he's globe trotting on yachts in white tuxedos. <laughs> A couple of weeks later, He's back in Brooklyn, you know, fixing his car in the garage. So I just love that, how we we just, nothing was out of bounds. Yeah. And we could go as big or as small as we wanted to do. And I just love that. That's what made it a, a joy to go to work every day. And you got to play baseball, too, as a plus. Yes, <laughs> yes I did. Now, that was the, the single most fun day of work that I've ever had as an actor was doing, we had a 60,000 seat stadium, domed stadium, mind you, all to ourselves. Wow. And ah. it was just, it, hey, if it was up to me, I would still be up there. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, no, another... no, 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 we need, 
we need this angle over here. No, get an angle down here. <laughs> well, another great, a great uh, storyline that I also believe became incredibly influential in movies uh, and books uh, was the Washington D.C. arc. The day oh. one day that with Norman Lloyd and that is a, yeah. I recently rewatched that that was an incredible I, I mean suddenly you're in the seat of of power you know it's Washington D.C. and you're dealing with a a conspiracy and these people hate you because of El Pavo they're bringing you're bringing back storylines from the first season and great monologues oh my as well God. from oh well, yeah in the hearings and all that yeah in the courtroom yes uh, the Senate hearings and all that yeah. Yeah, those were some speeches. You know, when I came to this town, it was one of the happiest days of my life. I was here to work in the shadow of Jefferson. I was warned. About the men that had become addicted to power and complacent about its misuse. I should have heeded that warning. But I was naive. I was naive enough to believe that there was more backbone in the truth than there was in corruption. Well, you know something? I still believe it. Despite this fair, informal hearing. I still believe it. And you know, your talk, I love how, you know, because you've gone on to do work outside of acting with veterans, and I love you give these speeches about what America means, you know, and how exciting you have that great moment where you're talking about how exciting it is to be in this seat of our, our democracy, and it's, it's great. Well, that's what I was going to say when Vinny, on, on day one, and by the way, I think that that arc is the most underrated arc. A hundred percent. You know, totally. Cannell totally. even said, oh, Cannell didn't, even though he pretty much left us alone, he still had his opinion, of course. It's still his company. And uh, he thought that that arc was a little bit too cerebral and confusing. And we vehemently disagreed with him. I said, no, you know. The whole audience can go a few minutes without seeing something blow up, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it might, and especially by that time, we pretty much had our core audience. So they mm -hmm. were with us by the time day one showed up, they were on board. The ones that were going to be on board were already. So, but I, the way, the thing I loved about that, one of the things I loved about that arc is when, yeah, on day one, when Vinny goes and he says, big pipe, pull over the car and, you see the capital, and you see the, and Vinny is so sweet, almost in his naivete. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, like, oh, I love this town. You know, this is what yep. it's all about. And yeah. then, as it turns out, all these people are want to chop his head off. Are conspiring against him, Absolutely. and that's what's so wonderful is that this could go. You mentioned it before, different genres. That there's the James Bond arc. There's the Godfather. There's this wonderful thing with his mother. Who who he can't tell that he's an undercover agent. She thinks he's a hood. And now you're doing seven days in May and a conspiracy <laughs> thriller. Yeah, yeah. And where the seed of that idea came from was my idea of counterfeiting. 
as one crime I've always been fascinated by, and mm-hmm. that is cheating. And I always thought, even as a kid, I thought, wouldn't it be smarter not to counterfeit your own currency, but counterfeit some foreign currency mm-hmm. and try to get it, you know, on the foreign exchange, however that works, you know. But that was where the seed of the idea came from, was my fascination with counterfeiting. Non-stable destabilization. <laughs> right, well, that, then and once uh, David and Steve got on board, then they expanded it to the, yeah, the non-genuine destabilization and all that. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, and that's the thing that Cannell had a hard time with. I said, no, it's fine when they're in that, in that one war room where they have the spray paint cannon or explaining all the steps of what's going on. I had no problem with that. I thought it was great. I thought it was fascinating. What yeah. they, what Steve and, and David came up with. Oh yes. So yeah, I, that's that's one of the most, probably the most underrated arc. Absolutely. Oh, and, and Norman Lloyd is a Hollywood legend. He was a treasure. Oh yeah. I mean, come on. And damn, he was only like 104, 105. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but everybody's Sorry. great now. When David Spielberg gets, uh, you know, basically. Um, Set up by Tracy Lords, and I mean, it's just yeah. so much great, juicy stuff in that. Oh, there, there really is. I, I tell you, I when we talk about this stuff, I just feel so grateful that I was able to do it. Look, you know, I would have loved to have not gotten hurt and been able to continue my career and all that, but things happen in life. What are you going to do? But the fact that I was able to do that at all. And here we are over 30 years later, 30 throughout yeah. third of a century later, and we're still talking about it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do the Lou Gehrig thing here you know? <laughs> <laughs> on the face of the earth. Uh, you know? And I really well, pe- do feel that way. Um, People don't not- realize how badly you were hurt during the garment trade, during the rag trade arc. Yeah. And then that affected you. Not only through the show, but unfortunately, I mean, it continues to this day that you've been, you know, as a result of, uh, you know, that accident yeah. with the dolly. Yeah, it, it was it was bad. Well, the thing the thing is, ironically, if that director had been a man instead of a woman, I wouldn't have done the second take because I don't know if you know this, but I got run over twice. Yeah, we did the first take. Bang hit me. I hear that. Uh, my Achilles tendon sounded like a champagne cork oh, being pulled out. Man. Yeah, pop. You know, being a trooper, and she didn't bat an eye. Um, so she wanted to do another take. We said, okay, you're the boss. But if that had been a guy, I would have said, you know what, pal, go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm, I am not mm-hmm. going to do another. You change the shot, and then we'll talk about doing another take. So we did exactly the same shot, the same thing. She made no adjustments. Bang! He got me again. Well, that was the end of it. That was all over. And then, of course, poor David and Steve. They had to scramble, and you know, they got Tony Dennison to come in, and they had to rearrange everything. It was mm-hmm. a nightmare. So I really felt bad for those guys. But I, I tried, but I just couldn't continue. Right. I think I did one or two episodes after that, mostly sitting down, sure. because it, it's it's swelled up. I mean, it was it was bad. It was bad. Plus, it was turned out to be a much more permanent injury because when I got hurt years later, uh, slip and fall was directly related to that first injury. Mm. So, but you know, like I said, 
things happened. It could have been a lot worse. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. was, uh, when I did the second injury, when I, not at work, this was, you know, privately, um, I was paralyzed for almost a year and a half. Okay. I learned to walk again and all that, but I did. I was able to. So because very great. When you came back and did the Wise Guy TV movie, you were oh. you were in a lot of pain when you did that. I mean, uh, it's amazing that you were able to get through that. Yeah, well, I I apologize for that. I really do to anybody that's wasted in, uh, two hours of their lives watching that. And I'm not even being facetious because I should have never done that. I should have been in the hospital. I, I shouldn't, but I wanted so badly just to try to be normal. Of course. And I, I knew not to try something new. It wouldn't even be fair, not just to the audience, but to the producers and everything. And I did get a lot of offers, which I'm very grateful for. But I thought, you know, if I can't do the job, I, I don't want to do the job. But right. I thought, well, wise guy's my baby. I'll give that a shot. Uh, but that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. And regardless of the quality of, of the movie, that's not even my point. But it's just that mm -hmm. I was, it, it was painful. You know what it reminded me of? I reminded myself of Dick Clark in the sense that after Dick Clark had his stroke, he insisted right. on being back on television. Yeah. And I, Mr. Clark, no, no, please. You have nothing to prove. Because you know, mm -hmm. I have that image of him doing the New Year's Eve thing with, uh, what's his name, Seacrest. Right. And that's how I remember him. When yeah. all those years, remember, they say how he how ageless he was, that he never aged. Absolutely. He so great. He was fit. And, and that's how you want to remember him. Well, that's kind of how I screwed things up. Of course, not to the degree that he is. But in the same sense that, there's no way I should have allowed myself to get in front of a camera in that condition. Because to me, an audience is just wincing, looking at me. They can't follow the story. They can't follow any the actors, what's going on. It's like, damn, you know, get a doctor for that poor bastard. <laughs> mm. And well, I know so I genuinely, sincerely apologize for that. It was just, I mean, I'm glad the, uh, the, the guys on the crew had a job. And they made some money doing it, so I'm I'm grateful for that. But I, I, for that to be on film permanently is a disgrace. And well, I know I, Rob is a big fan. Uh, he may be the only one, but he's a big fan of the taking of Beverly Hill, uh, taking of Beverly Hills. <laughs> so we'd be remiss <laughs> if we didn't ask you about Sydney Fury's Sydney misunderstood Fury. classic. <laughs> yeah. Coming in April from New Line Home Video. Beverly Hills, home of the rich and famous. But not for long. The richest city in America has just been shut down. I repeat, Beverly Hills is closed. Ripped off. And blown up. And now, it's up to football hero Boomer Hayes. All these guys with guns and nobody's supposed to get hurt. To even the score. And we'll go on three, you ready? This is my 
The Soldier and White Guy. Thank you. With a strong supporting cast that includes Matt Frewer of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Max Headroom. Robert Dobby of Die Hard and Raw Deal. Harley Jane Kozak of Arachnophobia and When Harry Met Sally. And versatile character actors George Weiner and Lyman Ward. The Taking of Beverly Hills, a $22 million theatrical production is pure action-packed police suspense with a hard-driving soundtrack that includes songs from EMF, Janet Jackson, Tony, 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 and Keith Sweat. It muscles its way into the home video market with the punch of other fast-paced thrillers like The Last Boy Scout in Lethal Weapon 1 and 2. And with in-store ammunition including a full-size theatrical poster and a two-sided standee cross-promoting the upcoming new line home video hit Lake for Dinner, The Taking of Beverly Hills is ready to blast for Taking of Beverly Hills. Take it April 22nd from New Line Home Video. You're unbelievable. Hey, listen, I remember when you were talking to David at the end of talking to David, you were saying about, hey, if uh, uh, KW, if you're listening, you know, come on the show and we'll break <laughs> yeah, the We never stuff. thought you would take us up on it. <laughs> we didn't know. <laughs> I heard you. I heard you, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to act opposite Robert Davi. Come on. <laughs> Who you would have well, been with in Wise Guy already. Yeah, I brought him back. I mean, you know what? You you had people like Lee Ving, who was part of uh, the L.A. punk scene for a while, who was in movies like Flashdance and Streets of Fire, and he was in there too. It was a crazy cast for Taking really Beverly Hills. <laughs> it was. I mean, Pamela Anderson was in it. That's right. <laughs> As yeah, an uncredited good. cheerleader. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I gave her a lot of credit. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, gratefully, that was off screen. <laughs> now, getting back to Joan Severance, no, <laughs> but uh, so <laughs> no, but I, I was going to say, Sydney Fury had done so many great films. Like Ipcris File and everything. The problem with that movie, obviously, is not you. I mean, you're an action star. The problem is uh, the script. You didn't have a David Burke, and you, you know, obviously, oh, I did. I brought him on board, but they cut <laughs> it all out. <laughs> uh, oh, listen, listen. I humbly and sincerely apologize for the '96 Wise Guy movie, but taking <laughs> Beverly Hills, make no apologies for because. You know, on paper it was fine. It looked good. It, it just turned out to be a mess, and a lot of that was because Sydney had no control over Matt Frewer. Mm. Matt uh -huh. Frewer, a, a sweetheart of a guy, lovely guy. I had some days off in the schedule. I went home. I just bought a house. Had a lot of things to do. And about I don't know four or five days. When I came back, everything was. All the crew, because I brought uh, probably 70% of the crew I brought with me from Vancouver mm. because we were a well-oiled machine. We could practically, by this time, read each other's thoughts. So we were, we were on top of everything so well. So I wanted them with me. And most of them were more than happy to come along. Uh, in any event, when I came back, what I had learned, the, the guys were all coming up to me. like, Kenny, oh, my God, Sid is just letting Frewer go nuts 
said, what do you mean? What do you mean? He's doing all this improv stuff. He said, we're shooting all day. Um, and we're not getting any film. He said, we're just shooting all these improv stuff that Frewer's doing. Apparently, Sid, when I was gone, Sid just let Frewer loose. And Frewer mm-hmm. took complete advantage of it. Now, I'm not blaming Matt because, as I said, he was a nice guy, a wonderful guy, very professional. But he was like a kid in a candy store. Sure. The director said, there you go. Switch the cameras on. Go do your thing. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and he did. And apparently this happened for four. So by the time we got back to some semblance of normalcy, it was already out of control. It mm-hmm. was already over. Yeah. It, turned out, it turned out to be shitty. But hey, man, you can't name me one actor that hasn't had some piece of crap on their resume. Hey, Clooney did Batman and Robin. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, and not only that, Orion was going out of business, and it was the end right. of the Die Hard in a blank phase. You know, there'd been a million of Die Hard, you know, uh, everybody yes. doing their version of Die Hard. And there's an art to doing that. It's like, I mean, and all kidding aside, it's like, you know, you did it you know, your best with what you were given. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're an action yeah, well, star. I, I mean, I love the fact that he was a football player. I like the premise of these guys having this master plan of shutting down Beverly Hills. Yeah. So they can ransack the entire city practically. Oh. I actually like, but when I read the first versions of the script, I didn't like it. And I, I turned this movie down probably four or five times and they just threw more money at me, threw more right. money at me, threw more so I said, you know what? But the money wasn't enough. I wanted to think that I have some dignity. I said, I will only do this if we can bring David Burke with me on board. Right. I said, you know, he's, he's my guy. As I said, I'm very protective of him. I think the world of him as a writer. And if I had been able to continue, I am, David and I would have had a production company together. Right, right. There's no doubt about it. That's how highly I think of him and Steve Cronish as well, mm-hmm. but m- more so uh, David, because I was, I worked more closely with David and I even brought David with me to Washington DC when I did the Larry King show. Mm-hmm. I brought, you know, we were just that tight personally mm-hmm. and professionally. The other thing was that we, we did get along so well personally as well. Uh, great right. friends still to this day, again, a third of a century later. And here we are. Well, he spoke so, so highly of you on the on the previous podcast episode that uh, we thought it might be a good idea to have you in. I, I guess it's yeah. a good idea. <laughs> I think it was very wise. <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, if nothing else, the taking of Beverly Hills has one of the great movie posters of the 90s. And I have to tell you, because I was a Wise Guy fan, I bought that one sheet, you know, the actual theatrical poster, because you were standing yeah. there looking like a boss. <laughs> it just says on the top. Yeah. Ken Wall, and then you're standing there with your tuxedo with the uh, tie undone with like a Molotov right. cocktail. Come on, man. That was rad. Hey, I won $1,000 with that Molotov cocktail. And don't forget, he was yeah, Boomer I'll, I'll, Hayes. Boomer yeah, Hayes, one of the Boomer great Hayes. names. <laughs> I know. I love that. I love How'd that you too. win 1000 bucks with a cocktail? I'll show you. Okay, remember when, uh, when Boomer's out hanging out of the um, window of the car and the car's driving by and uh, Boomer throws the cocktail. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you know, okay. Well, the stunt guy, he set up um, a garbage can, one of those big steel garbage cans on its side as a target for me to throw at <laughs> so it looked the best in camera. 
And he says, I'll bet you a thousand dollars you can't get it in that can as you're driving by. That son of a bitch. Done. We're out of here. So, yeah. Oh, a grand I won just for, for that one throw. So that was that was the highlight of that. But no, it was I mean it was a fun movie to work at, and they recreated Rodeo Drive. We you know we shot that in Mexico City. Holy cow! And they they recreated uh, Rodeo Drive and a couple other streets in and uh, Beverly Hills to the T. I yeah. mean, right down to the cracks in the sidewalk. Yeah. It was incredible the job that they did down there for that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, poor Sid. You know, I had worked with Sid before, um, and at uh, Vietnam, we called uh, Purple Hearts. Purple Hearts, yeah, yeah, and um, you know, everything was fine. As I, I liked Sid a lot personally, and uh, yeah, I know the Ipcrest file and all that. Something happened. I don't know what happened. Maybe something very bad. I didn't get into it with him, mm-hmm. but when he let Frewer loose like that, and just in a very undisciplined way, I knew this. It was all over. It was all over. So I said, you know, you live and die with these things sometimes. And so it's it's not the end of the world, though. Everybody's got some crap in their closet somewhere. Well, you By got way, to direct on Wise Guy uh, yeah. an episode. What was that experience like for you? How did you like directing? Loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I had no script when I did it. I had enough. I had a, a small outline. It was truly a baptism by fire. But I loved it because I'm very uh, detail-oriented. Um, for instance, with Vinny's wardrobe, you know, I came up with this thing that Vinny was an anachronism, that he would have loved to have been born in a different time. And that's why he dressed that way. He wanted simplicity. He got into this business of trying to bring these bad guys down because my backstory that I created was that he was avenging his father's life. Mm-hmm. He saw that... Uh, how we how will we remember me episode mm-hmm. the black and white episode. because it it occurred to me at the very early on too I think why would a guy risk his life doing this job making what at that time maybe thirty grand a year thirty five grand a year to, to risk his life going there's got to be some great motivation behind it and that's what I came up with that his father was a simple honest guy in the neighborhood and all mm-hmm. the other guys in the neighborhood were getting rich driving Cadillacs. Wearing five hundred dollars suits, you know, mm-hmm. driving because everybody was crooked to some degree and making a little extra on the side. But Vinny's old man did not, and so that was like, "I'm doing this for you, Pop." That's what it's all about. That's, and that's great. On a personal level, I worship my own dad so much. Yeah. So it it really was my Valentine to my own father. Mm. Getting choked up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are killing me. You guys are killing uh, me. I'm getting shocked. Uh, because, you know, my dad was such a great guy. He worked his ass off. He worked himself to death. And But he always had a smile. He, he was the toughest guy I ever knew. And I don't mean tough that he's going to kick your ass. I mean tough in that he had all this diver- adversity happen to him. And he just rolled along with the punches. Right. And he would never scowl. He would never take it out on anybody. He just moved uh, in his in his private moments. Who knows? He might have bawled like a baby for all I know. But in front of any of us and all, and all his kids and all the rest of the family, he was just stalwart and just stoic. Yeah, and it's like bad 
happen, his favorite expression was, ah, what are you going to do? You know, he was, that was his, I should have made him a t-shirt with that on it because he was in, I mean, the guy went bankrupt twice. All he did was work his ass off all his life. And, um, so, you know, when I got hurt, I remember back about the, the bad things that happened to my pop and it's like, Hey man, what are you going to do? Just deal with it and move on. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to get maudlin on you no, guys. No, not like a, at all. He sounds like a good man. So I, I guess now would be the time to ask you about Cheryl Ladd, a Charlie's Angel, and Purple Heart. No, I'm kidding. I don't have to ask you about that. Do you want to? I'm fine with it. Because, man, she, she looked was, good in that movie. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. She was, I tell you, that was tough because we had some really, really um, rough love scenes. And what I mean by rough is, you know, aggressive. And she was a real trooper. It was the, but the problem was her oh, husband was her manager. Right. Oh, so, oh boy. <laughs> he was down there monitoring the thing the whole time. Yeah, so, moment you know, by I, moment. Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. like, man, get the hell out of here. I said, you didn't <laughs> because, well, she was a wreck. Because she couldn't she couldn't perform properly because yeah. she She's knows her old man's watching. Yeah. And I said, look, man, you read the script. You know what was going on here. If you didn't want her doing these scenes, you shouldn't have let her do this movie. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here. Let me so work. I, I could, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let us go to work. It, well, I'll, get, I'll get done with her. I'll, I will ruin her for you. I will ruin her for you. Yeah. And then you can go home and try to deal with it. Go to therapy and try yeah, to figure go, it out. Go pick up the pieces. <laughs> <laughs> well... By the way, I, that I, movie's actually a pretty good film. You know, thank it's, you. it's very respectable. I'm, I'm proud of that one. It's good. There, there's things I wish were different, but I am proud of that one. It's good. Thank you. I, I got to ask you, because obviously I know Ray was like your favorite guest star but on Wise Guy, but you worked with so many people from Kevin Spacey to Jerry Lewis to, you know, Robert Davi to, to David Strathairn. So other than oh, Ray, okay. who, was, who was maybe your favorite guest star or, or character that you got to play with on that show? Easy. Glenn Fry. <laughs> Hands down. You know what's so funny? Glenn was the sweetest fucking guy. He was just, you just want to go up to him and hug him. He's mm -hmm. just that kind of a guy. He's that person. And you know what's so weird? Um, Glenn is 11 years older than I am. Right. But in that whole movie, and I was just talking to Burke about this the other day. It, it seemed like Vinny was older than Bobby Travis, the yes. part that Glenn mm -hmm. Totally. Because Glenn has such a charming, sweet, childlike quality about him. If you remember towards the end of the arc, when Vinny goes to, to see uh, Bobby Travis and Bobby says, oh, it's crying time. He lost everything. And says, uh, Vinny tells him, no, you get to have the company under these conditions. But well, and when Vinny's done telling him that he can have the company back, yes, 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 yes. like a, like a six year old right. little kid at Christmas. <laughs> and I I just love the guy. He was just so wonderful and pleasant and so forthcoming and so sweet. And uh, yeah, hands down, Glenn Fry. That's, that's life you... in the that's life in the fast lane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, uh, but, but I don't want to I don't want to diminish anybody else's contributions no, or my feelings no. about, I got Jerry Lewis. I love, um, 
Pinzola, Rick Pinzola, helped me out. Oh, Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci. Yeah. yeah. Stanley Tucci was great. And you know what? On top of that, they were really kind and sweet with me because that was right after I got hurt. Mm-hmm. And they went out of their way, both Jerry and Stanley and Ron Silver. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was, hey, Kenny, can we help you out? Can we? Can I get you a cup of coffee? You know, because I, I was really hobbled. Right. And they were so sweet, so kind. I'm going to get choked up again because, <laughs> you know, Ron Ron is gone. Yeah. And Jerry's gone. Jerry's gone, yeah. And, and they were just so wonderful because they had just got there. They were the strangers on the set. And you would think that they were the, the, the ones that had been around because they were so sweet and kind to me, knowing mm-hmm. that I was injured. And they couldn't do enough for me. And I'll be eternally grateful to them for that. Yeah, but you uh, were just, number one on the call sheet and you set the tone, you know? So people, you know, came there and, they, you know, they were respectful and they knew that, you know, they came to play and bring their A game because that's the tenor you said. You know what? You were the first person that's ever mentioned that. And I am so glad because that is something I was very proud of was that being number one on the call sheet, I took that responsibility very seriously. Is that because I grew up in a very turbulent household and a lot of violence, a lot of being tossed around. It, it was tough. So I like it when things are calm and tranquil and run well. So I like a peaceful set. I am not an actor that believes that you have to have turmoil in order to be artistic. I just don't believe that. And so I made sure that everybody felt appreciated. You know, I started this thing where I had them send me a cassette of the show and the Wednesday nights was our air night. So on Wednesday at lunchtime, I have them uh, bring in the TV and the cassette player so that the crew could watch the show. So they could see the the fruits of their labor. Mm, that's great. That was a huge hit. You know, it's so good for morale. Yeah. You know, and I was because my dad taught me to be a team player, and mm. I love being and it, being number one on the call sheet. You're the captain of the team. Yep. Yeah. And but everything starts from there. You know, David and and Steve, those guys were all a thousand miles away in L.A. Yeah. Right? So up in Vancouver. You know, I'm I'm the guy. You know, I'm the Derek Jeter, yeah, uh, of the set. It's your there. responsibility and to let everyone know that they're part of it. Absolutely, and it's just as important, in my view, as the acting that's going on. Every because yep. when you get those elements together, that permeates through the screen. I believe. I'll give you an example. When Vinny finds his father's belongings. And he goes through that journal. The prop guy, Bobby, wrote all that stuff in longhand, even though it was never going to show up on camera. Yeah. And I asked him, Bobby, what did you go to all this trouble for to do this? And he just looked me straight in the eye and he said, professional pride, man. This is wise guy. (laughs) (laughs) My heart exploded, you know. Uh, I said, come here, you little son of a bitch. You know, I just grabbed you a magnificent <laughs> and just gave him a big kiss on the cheek. You know, and I get the fuck out of here, you know. And it was things like that. We had 20-hour um, days doing the makeup stuff for the black and white show because I had appliances and doing all this stuff. Never once did they make a peep about having these long-ass hours 
nobody ever once complained about that because they knew how much that show meant to me personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. That's so you know, great. and I could give you examples of that everyday working. And that's why, as it turned out, that was my swan song, essentially. Right. And that's why it's okay. Sure, I would have, I'm not going to lie and say, I, I wish, I don't wish that I could have continued. But since I can't, knowing that I have that arrow in my quiver, I'm more than happy. I, what, what I was able to do on Wise Guy, actors would kill for just to work one day on that show. Yeah. So I feel very lucky for what I was able to do. Well, Ken, that is such a great place for us to end right now. But I got to tell you, I hope you'll come back because I know that there's so much more we'd love to talk to you about about the show. But you've been so generous with your time and uh, speaking to us. And uh, we really appreciate it. This is a real highlight for us. That's great because I'm telling you, I wouldn't have done it had I not heard you guys with David Burke and how well you did with him. And the the great rapport that you guys have with each other, that it made it a truly enjoyable for me. So thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank no, you. thank you. And by the way, it was David Kemper who was on the panel uh, from CBS. Ah. He he was the other person on, on the panel. But I, seriously, I never met him. I I heard <laughs> I've heard the name. I know the name, but I never met him. Mm. You, you wouldn't know that from listening to him. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know what? I, I maybe I did meet him, and I'm sorry. I just don't remember. Yeah, no, no, of course. But you know, the name, is, the name rings all, but I can't place a face to it. And I'm usually and, pretty good with that. And Ken, I know you're very active in uh, uh, veterans affairs and also in uh, animal charities. Do you want to yes. uh, mention any of the charities that maybe yes, our listeners can make a donation to? We'd love to to give you a chance Absolutely. to do that. Another uh, main reason of my doing this. So yes, we have. Uh, hold on just a second. Let me get my notes here. And I, I got to give credit to my lovely wife because I am um, advocate for veterans with PTSD yeah. and try to help them connect with comfort animals because it is a great help. It was a great help for me when I was hurt. But she does all the legwork. She does all the the networking on the computer and all that, which she is great at. So she deserves most of the credit. I just lend my name and give a shout out every once in a while. So yes, there's a canine for warriors, canines, plural, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. caninewarriors.org. And they're in Florida. They actually lobby for veterans. They do a great job of connecting comfort animals with uh, veterans with PTSD. Um, there's another one called nokilladvocacy.org, nokilladvocacy.org, run by a guy named Nathan Winograd, who's an attorney that tries to shut down kill shelters because there is no reason that animals need to be killed. They can Absolutely. be placed. So that's just a, a cruel handling, just try an easy fix is to just terminate these animals, and it's not necessary. And they could do so much good for so many people. Now, one thing I do want to say that over the years, I started this in 2010 when I heard on the news that 22 veterans commit suicide per day. Mm. I couldn't believe that. I thought it was, they said it wrong, but it was actually true. So you're talking almost one person an hour, a veteran is committing suicide. 
So that's when I said, I got to do something. I got to do something. I don't know what. I don't know what. So I just thought through my own experience with my own injuries, how much of a comfort that animals were for me. So I thought, well, if that worked for me, maybe it'll work for these guys. And that's how it all started. So those are the two organizations, the top organizations. Great. Well, what you're doing now is so important, and we hope everybody who's enjoyed hearing this very rare conversation with Ken, uh, who, who's given us so much joy uh, uh, for so many years in this legendary TV show, among other things, will take the time to make a donation to these uh, important charities. And, uh, yeah, and Ken, not, again, just not, you know, not just money. If you can get involved in some way, that would be great. Yeah. You know, and there's a, a lot of people that know, if not in their own immediate families or friends, uh, outside relatives and outside friends that have problems with this PTSD. And it's not just for veterans either where the animal can help. It's for everybody and going mm -hmm. through any kind of depression or things like that. And I also just want to give a real plug for my buddy, Gary Sinise, who mm. is a com absolute champion for veterans causes. Absolutely. And he's at GarySiniseFoundation.org. Just a wonderful guy. He's another Chicago guy. Yep. <laughs> another terrific actor. Yes, it's, another terrific actor. It's and, funny, and, just, and more just important, more importantly, uh, more importantly, a great guy. Yeah. And just on a side, I, I met Gary in 1981 at Steppenwolf. We saw, wow. uh, we saw uh, Of Mice and Men there when I was in high school. And it was amazing. Wow. And I got to meet him before anyone in, across the country knew of him. But you're from Chicago, too? I'm from Chicago, too. Uh, just what part? In, uh, out in the western suburbs uh, near uh, Bensonville. Oh, a Cub fan. <laughs> damn right. You're damn right I'm a Cub fan. <laughs> I'm a Southsider, and it, yeah. it, it's painful. But I'm a White Sox fan. All well, right. maybe you know, Ken won't be coming back to join us right. in the future. <laughs> Thanks, Darren. It's all going so well. <laughs> I, you know what? It depends on how the season goes. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the Cubs are playing the Angels tonight, right? So, uh, I don't know. The wow. Sox are having a rough year, too, though. I know they're, they're both under 500 right now. But uh, anyway... It's a it's yeah, a I, it's a thankless job being a fan of either yeah, of those yeah. teams. I, I, I almost committed suicide in 2016 when the Cubs <laughs> when the series against Cleveland. I hear you. So I'm still I'm still working on getting over that. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, guys. so yeah, there's a and, hey Gary 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 Sinise, You've known him longer than I have. I haven't uh, known him that long, but for quite a few years. And he's also a Cubs fan, so it's okay. I'm, <laughs> well, if it's uh, any yeah, consolation, I'm sure he doesn't remember me. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he doesn't, I will remind him. What a great Gary, joy to have Gary you with Sinise, us tonight. It's GarySiniseFoundation.org. Just yep. wanted to get that in there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Thank you so much, Ken. It was really a I, true pleasure and an honor having the chance to talk to you today. Right, and to show the change television and uh, we're indebted to you as people that uh, all work at TV today. Uh, you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants and you're one of the biggest. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so hey, much. Ha have a great oh, night. Maybe we'll talk again sometime. We'd love, love it. That. Okay. Take okay. care. All right, you guys take care. Okay. So we've got to interview a lot of great people in the history of the show. 
And I have to say, I mean, I, I'm not going to speak for Ashley and Darren because I don't think they have the same connection to Wise Guy that Rob and I do. But this was one of the one of the highlights. And I've interviewed a lot of people in my career. Me but too. To, to have the chance to talk to Ken Wall, <laughs> it's amazing. Just Dude, watching, I'm like, I was like tearing two, up. Watching you two uh, go at it was truly educational and entertaining. I, I, I loved I, every moment of it. A delight in every way. I I, I didn't want to interrupt it for fear of breaking the magic. Okay. I I remember at the Saturn Awards a couple of years ago, and this is true. The, the I discovered Wise Guy because my dad loved it, right? And mm -hmm. I he said you you he said Mark, you'd love the show, and so um, he he hit me to Wise Guy. I actually started watching it during the um, uh, the Ken and Spacey. Arc, and I think one of the reasons he loved it so much was because of Joan Severance, which was one of the reasons I loved it so much. And I immediately fell in love with the with the show. So then, during summer repeats, I went back and watched the Sunny Steel Grave arc, which was like even better, right? And um, and it was one of my it's one of my fond memories, with, one of many fond memories with my dad. You know, we always have the connection with our dads as things that we did with special and wise guy was one of those things. And I remember telling Jonathan Banks that once when I was spending some time with him. And uh, you know, he he was he was really appreciative. And I think he's always surprised when people bring up Wise Guy because obviously he's done so many other things like Beverly Hills Cop and uh, uh Breaking Bad. But you know, the thing that people forget is the reason that Vince Gilligan cast Jonathan Banks right. on Breaking Bad was because him and Peter Gould are huge wise guy fans. Yeah, right. You know, the thing. Wise Guy and Star Trek The Next Generation both started in 87. And that was when 87, 88, at the end of the 88 school year, I moved from Seattle to California. I just wow. celebrated my 35th anniversary. I moved in 88. And it, the only shows that I watched, you know, moving to California, going to USC, I, I didn't watch any television except Star Trek The Next Generation and Wise Guy. <laughs> and and for the, carrying me, the ending my college career and beginning my, uh, call it adulthood, I say that loosely, right. uh, in California, both Next Generation and Wise Guy were were very, as far as media went, very important to me. Well, isn't and, it uh, interesting, interesting how, to see, it's a, uh, just one, one second, I, I, it's sure. interesting to hear Rob talk about his adulthood when he is surrounded by one six. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. What adulthood is that, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> Where is it I on your said I loosely, I loosely uh, use the word. <laughs> I just, I think it's fascinating that you kind of bring that up as your two touchstones from that time, because in the intervening years, the next generation kind of took its cues from Wise Guy. I mean, the thing that was most special about Wise Guy at the time was the fact we. We talk about the idea that there were these arcs on the show, and we take it for granted. And I think that there are probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast who hear that, and it doesn't really make an impression on them because they think that's what TV is like. Now, we've talked about the fact that at the time, TV wasn't like that. But, but here's an angle that didn't even occur to me until we were talking to Kent, which is that you know, look, when you live in a world where the shows that you love to watch are available to you 24-7 in any order you choose, pretty much with no effort whatsoever, it's easy for somebody to green light a show uh, where you can easily get lost if you miss an episode because it's easy to find the episode. 
But in the world that Wise Guy was made, in that world, it was nearly impossible, especially when, I mean, Ken was talking about having six weeks of preemptions. You know, right. you don't even know when the goddamn show is going to be. Yeah, right. So I was taping them on VHS. It, you know, it, that was the only way. I was in college. I couldn't necessarily be there to watch. So I would have to, you know, record them. And I suspect that was probably the only way to truly keep up with shows like that. So you, it's it's easy to want to say, wow, you know, there was something really, um, and there was something very progressive about how Wise Guy was was written and how it was structured, and that's true. And it was a leap of faith by CBS, and and that's all true. But I think the thing that you know people have to remember is at the time it wasn't a risk because they thought the audiences were stupid. It was a risk because it was impossible to watch TV the way that we watch TV right now. Yeah. No, you're you're absolutely right, hundred percent. Yeah. No, I mean, it was great. I mean, I remember, you know, obviously my dad's two favorite shows were Wise Guy and The Sopranos. And The Sopranos was only because it was autobiographical for him. But, um, <laughs> the, but uh, Wise Guy was just this amazing, uh, um, just amazing. I'm so glad he told me about it because it, it's really, it was really special. And the serialized, I mean, Hill Street Blues did it, St. Elsewhere did serialized, but it was more serialized character stories. Right. They still had standalone, it was generally standalone. Right. You uh, could have uh, that story resolution time. in the episode. You could start it, you could end it, you could understand what happened, and you knew that there was other crap kind of happening with the, yeah. with the characters. But the Wise Guy was interconnected with plot. The, funny, like you, great, the great thing about you telling about your dad like that is that at the core of it, it means that your dad knew you very well. <laughs> yeah. And you are an eggplant. And that's a that's a great thing when he could just say, you know, I think you'll like this show, and you loved it so much. Yeah, that, true. Yeah, that connection is is there. And now I'm doing that with my son, and he's as outraged that they cut French Connection as I am. Yeah, because you heard about that today. <laughs> what? That they 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 well, they edited uh, uh, some dialogue from French Connection because it's. Uh, not, uh, uh, it's not, you know, a, com a parlance that you would use in conversation because it's, it's not in offensive. the parlance of our time. Yeah, but but the reality is, this is an Oscar-winning motion picture from the '70s about a racist cop, yeah. right? Yeah, right. So, and, and apparently, uh, Disney uh, in the in the middle of the night uh, uh, excised uh, some objectionable language and replaced the digital version. Now, yeah. fortunately, most of us here have the Blu-ray. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, physical media forever. Well, I'm going to get the Blu-ray. But uh, the digital uh, and the Criterion uh, is currently showing it, and it is uh, missing uh, a couple of. Uh, yeah. So uh, now, some, you know, now Popeye splash. Doyle shoots first. <laughs> no, but they, Disney's the most egregious. I mean, editing adventures and babysitting, editing yeah. uh, digitally, adding hair to splash. Mm -hmm. I mean, and th this idea that our society or even kids, like, you know, looking at a mermaid, they can't deal with the fact that when a mermaid runs into the water and you see her backside, the idea is it's not sexual. It's about her losing her legs and turning into a fish. Well, the, the, good, isn't it that, the good side of all this is that Disney is running out of money and they won't be around long. Yeah, that's true. That's you can all take solace in that. Look, I love Disney. I, I just, I, I feel that they I need loved to Disney. lay off. I think they're doing bad things. I love the idea of Disney. Just I, I like a, was it love or the idea of being in love? 
they, they, they need, they need to look everyone it's this is not just a disney problem everyone stops needs to stop censoring whether it's books or or or, or self-expression uh, uh, or anything or people. it's like yeah let right. people be people and let right. them do what they love it's not hurting you it's not hurting anyone else and and stop being so fucking judgmental and uh and just uh and leave james bond around. alone that's right well, and, 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 but and also, and I mean, Bond alone. it's it's history. Like Bond is a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. He's a relic yeah. of the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. And we know well this. Quoted. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. But we anyway. we digress. This is this we like the beginning of another all. podcast because we, we are relics all. of the Cold War as well. Um, <laughs> That's true. This was this was a thrill. I'm deeply indebted to David Burke for helping facilitate this. And uh, I hope to have Ken on again because so much more we could touch on, but we really didn't, you know, want this to become uh, Lawrence of Arabia tonight or right. Ken of Arabia. You know, we, we we wanted to keep it at a manageable length. And um, uh, just I hope you you out there in listener land enjoyed this as, as much as we did. And uh, as always, you can join us here on uh, Trexperts uh, on Dex78 by subscribing to Trexperts Plus and not only have access to our Dex78 episodes, but the uh, new Trexperts screening room where you can join us for screenings of various uh, uh, um, movies and TV shows. Including, I'm hope, I hope we can get Rob to, to join. Yeah. Well, convince Rob, let's do a screening of Free Enterprise for our listeners. And maybe you can bring on some of the per network uh uh, subscribers as well for uh, oh I'd uh, love to do a virtual that. film festival. I'd like to try a version out of it that that uh, see what people think. That would be uh, that would be delightful. Yeah. So um, anyway, we're deeply uh, grateful also to you, Rob, for joining us. It would not be a wise guy conversation without the uh, without the no, wise guy, the original it, wise guy. It was, <laughs> it was no, it was my honor. I mean, you know, isn't it fantastic? We live in an age where we're able to talk to these people that, it's you know, awesome. meant so much to us. It's and Rob, and, it's the time for miracles, Theo. It really is. Absolutely yeah. incredible. Yeah, it really, look, we're very lucky that our, whatever stature or pedestal or whatever it is that we do, this that gives us the access to these people. Um, we can be very grateful and honor the people that did what we love that made us do what we do. Yep. So uh, it's it's whether it's Darren talking to Doug Trumbull or us making a film with Bill Shatner or Ashley uh, getting to turn the X Men into a big budget uh, feature film. Um, it's just extraordinary, and uh, you know, uh, and we're so lucky that we have this opportunity, and that there are people out there are interested in us sharing this with them. Yep. So, and then share our passion. So, always, always a delight. So, until uh, next time on Deck 78, uh, on behalf of Robert Mark Burnett, Ashley E. Miller, Darren Document, and myself, Mark A. Altman, fire the rockets.
Trek 78 is an exclusive podcast from Trexperts Plus.